Swami's book, The Hindu Way of Awakening. Oops, we're doing chapters 10 and 11. This first chapter is called Symbolism or Idolatry that we're dealing with. Um, two things I want to finish before I go on. When I was thinking about what I talked about two weeks ago in our last class, I was remembering that I just failed to just mention that aspect of um, Hinduism, which Swami brought up, which is the way the temples of India, he said, are styled in the, in the way of the human body with all of the um, duality on the outside. And then he describes it, which is interesting. You know, in a, in a Christian temple, the sort of the most elaborate places when you get way inside. I mean, the buildings can be very fancy, but the, all the, the greatest, all the gold and gilt is all reserved for the altar. And uh, that's where you see people pour their energy into it. And in Indian temples, some of them at least Swami was describing, it's often the opposite way, that all of the um, vivid dis- um, ar- architecture and um, carving and so on, and especially he's talking about the specific temples and emphasize what we talked about so much last week, which is the male-female duality. And there'll be this, all these pictures of duality which will be represented by the male and female, often in what people consider to be erotic um, carvings. Not by any means all are done that way, but some are done that way. And he said, but yet, even those temples, the, the closer you get to the, the center of it, the more and more plain it becomes. And of course, yes, they will dress the idols sometimes in fancy things. But it, and the less and less you see of uh, all of that, all of the world, you know, all of that gets stripped away, and then you're finally dealing with very, very simple images when you get right to the center. Sometimes a statue, sometimes a stone. But he was trying to say that even the temples themselves are considered symbolic, which is that externally you have all of this physicality and all this duality of the world going on, but as you get closer and closer to the center of the truth, you find more and more simplicity, and then you just go into that one spirit, and you don't have the humanness, so to speak, so much in the inner sanctums. Which is it's a very interesting point. I was, I also, in the first class here, I was talking about how much of our concept of Hinduism was formed by Christian missionaries who found it impossible to reconcile their concept of religion and their idea of revelation and of Jesus with um, what they found in India. And recently someone gave me a book, it's, about, it's called Women of the Raj, and it's a book about the women, the English women primarily, who accompanied their husbands and their relatives to India during all the years when the English were in charge, you know, from the 1700s, 1800s into 1948, when finally the country was given over to the Indian people. But it talked about how puritanical, for the most part, almost all of these women were, how completely separated the English culture was from the Indian culture, especially after the Great Mutiny, which was in the middle of the 1800s, when the Indian people rose up and slaughtered some of the English people. Um, Especially after that time, there was this tremendous sense of distance. And how absolutely beyond horrified the English women were at these erotic carvings on the so-called temples. And all of the thoughts, and plus Shiva lingams and things that they considered to have sexual connotations, um, they just... uh, were so, uh, I can't, my words, words fail me, but you can imagine how they felt about it. And all of that also 
just sort of spilled over and, and created this um, whole sense that Westerners have about this, you know, extremely pagan religion. And then Swamiji takes on the concept today of idolatry. And he starts out by saying, he said, few Hindus appreciate the degree to which thou shalt, ha- thou shalt ha- not have no idols before me, thou shalt worship no other gods, thou shalt not make images. How even this, while he describes it, the least church-going Westerner still knows that God forbids the worshiping of idols. And he says Hindu guides to temples will very casually say, and here is the, you know, the idol of Lord Rama that we worship every morning. And he has no concept of how uh, just how much bad PR that is, you know, <laughs> for his own faith. And then, in fact, when Indians get sort of uh, involved in the Western world and see the horror that the Westerners have for that, it makes them also feel a, a little bit embarrassed. Because here it is, and we, we always talk about Ganesha as one of the main ones because he's an elephant-headed god. And there it are, it are we're worshipping this elephant-headed god with this little rat in the corner and, or this four-armed Vishnu or Brahma with his four heads. And it, it's all of the deeper significance for the most part, even for the devout Hindu who, who understands to a certain extent what these represents he too finds it difficult to reconcile this with this profound aversion that Westerners have based on a concept that they think was God's word. Swamiji starts out by saying, you know, most religious institutions are advocating their own agenda and that institutional religions and the um, representatives of those religions are simply not the ones to look to to interpret delicate points of scripture He said, the only people that you can really ask, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier, are those who've had an actual revelation, a direct experience of what those scriptures are trying to communicate. Because once they put it into words, then it becomes limited by what those words mean to individuals, what any word can mean to an individual, and it's not the same as a direct perception. So Swamiji talks at some length about this whole image of thou shalt you know, not worship idols. And he, he goes through the whole story in this book of Moses taking the children, the, the Jewish nation, out of slavery in Egypt and then wandering around in the Sinai desert for their, those 40 years. I think it's in here that Swami comments. He said, if you look at a map, you can see that that desert is really small and it would be really hard for one individual what to speak of a whole nation to be lost in it for 40 years. So he points out that there must be some symbology involved here. But he also mentions, he says, even when scripture has historical basis, like the Moses, the Moses was an avatar, and that experience in some form or another of him miraculously being able to take the Jewish people out of their slavery Um, to the Egyptian overlords and then delivering them eventually to the land of milk and honey. I mean, there must be some historical basis for all of that because usually an avatar has that kind of um, world-changing mission. And the fact that it's been preserved in the scripture all this time tells you that. But also there has to be symbology. The Battle of Kurukshetra, the whole Bhagavad Gita, which we've been working, we worked on for so many weeks, I mean, there was a battle of Kurukshetra. These are historical characters, and yet the historical events are used to explain something else. 
So Swami talks to us about how Moses, who was the avatar sent to those people, Master says he was certainly a fully self-realized master, and he was forming um, what had been a slave nation into a free people, which was why the rules were laid out so clearly. And also it was Kali Yuga time going down. Swami interestingly points out that there was uh, that the time of Buddha and the time of Moses were roughly similar in different parts of the world. And it was Kali Yuga going down, going down pretty hard too. You know, just sort of all of the subtleties, um, the capacity for the human mind to maintain these subtle understandings spiritually was being lost. And Buddha and Moses, to a certain extent, had similar messages. That's what he points out, which is interesting. Um, the Buddha was uh, deeply distressed by what he perceived to the passivity of the Indian people. And Moses was taking a slave people and trying to make them into an independent people. And all of it was the emphasis on their own ability to stand up and function for themselves. So Buddha took the emphasis off of passive waiting for God to take care of you. So much so that Buddhism has become essentially atheistic because Buddha did not emphasize our relationship to God because he was issuing a corrective for too much passive dependence on God. It wasn't that he didn't speak of God or wasn't devoted to God. It just wasn't what he emphasized. And Moses also didn't primarily emphasize devotion. He emphasized primarily obedience and the clarity of the law. And it wasn't until Jesus came to the Jewish people that he had to correct what Moses, the aberration that had set in at the time of Moses. His emphasis, too, was on right behavior. There was a great similarity between the two of them, somewhat external, perhaps because through Kali Yuga that's what was needed. Of course, Jesus came also in Kali Yuga descending. So he, he, he issued the correctives so that it would, sort of, it would stay in place through that whole really dark time and there would be some remnant left of the truth to come up the other side. Well, um, what Jesus, what Swamiji describes and what the story of Moses and the whole big image about idols is all about, and we've all seen Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of the Ten Commandments, and we remember how the Jews were way out there in the desert, and then Moses went away to commune with God, and he left the people on their own. And the way Swami describes that is that Moses, of course, represented their um, channel to God, whether it was literally the absence of Moses that caused it, but it could have been. But he certainly represented their direct capacity to commune with God. So Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. He's, he's out in the wilderness of his own consciousness, wherever he was. And in that time, the people turned away from the true path. Because after all, they were still... Um, being formed. They weren't strong in this. And the way the Bible tells the story, they, of their jewelry, they made a golden calf and then they worshipped that calf. And Swami talks about how they reveled in front of it. Then they were, you know, there was the Im implication of drunkenness and um, uh, uh, sensual indulgence and all these different things. And they, they just kind of basically lost their minds and they lost the connection with the true path that Moses was trying to bring them. And then, of course, Moses declared, thou shalt make no idols, thou shalt not turn your mind away from God. But what was really being said, and this is where you see the symbols become the facts after a while. So in their turning away from God, supposedly, they had made this image, but they'd made the image out of gold. It was gold 
that they were worshipping. And Swamiji describes that the, the um, classic uh, detractors from the spiritual path have always been money, sensuality, and drunkenness. You know, the wine women and... Uh, Wine, women, and wine. Wine, women, and gold. Yes, thank you. I couldn't, couldn't remember for a minute there. <laughs> and it could just as well be men. just depends. But it's the, it's the losing contact with your inner reality in the false um, freedom of intoxicants, in the illusion of power that money gives you, and in the uh, ephemeral pleasure that can be had through the senses. And, of course, that's what was happening. I mean, it wasn't that they just made this little calf or big calf, whatever it was, it's that they had become enamored again of delusion. And it was for that reason that, Jesus, that Moses scolded them. And when the commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it's not gods like, oh look, here's Lakshmi, here's Shiva. He wasn't really speaking against these other images. He meant you shall not make anything else a god that's more important to you than your relationship with the divine. But then you see how these things become dogmatized. And now I know in the Jewish religion especially, it's just um, my family um, is Jewish, and it's difficult to describe which upsets them the most. I mean, all of that generation has now passed from this planet, so it's not an issue. But you know, is, well, of course, the presence of Jesus is appalling, but the presence of anybody is profoundly upsetting because they take so seriously that you shall not worship any god but the one true God. But then Swamiji goes on this wonderful and, and, and truly enlightening explanation of how really preposterous that is and how ultimately extremely detrimental that is to a person's spiritual life. Because first of all, you could imagine that your little statue actually in itself is, is God. And that your little statue, I don't know, gets up at night and does things for everyone. But the fact of the matter is, we all use images to remind us of other realities. And to, to not understand so self-evidently, at least what the intention is behind the many images you see in the Hindu context, is, is to really be so prejudiced against these people or to imagine that human beings are so different one from another that we can be enlightened and sophisticated and they must be all simpletons, which of course was the prejudice that the West brought to India for a very long period of time. But Swamiji says, you know, you have a picture of your father in your home. You know, and, and all Christian churches have images that represent Christ, whether it's the cross or Jesus on a crucifix or in, if you're inclined in the Catholic way toward Joseph or Mary or pictures of the saints. And nobody imagines that that statue itself is actually Jesus Christ, but self-evidently, it reminds you of Jesus Christ. And if it reminds you of Jesus in a way that uplifts your, it uplifts your heart, it becomes the focal point for your devotion. And Swamiji also explains this word worship. You know, you're not worshiping it again as if it in itself had the power, but it represents to you that power. And it provides a focal point for that. It seems, it seems so self-evident that it would hardly have to be emphasized. But, of course, many of the images um, that we see in Hinduism seem very peculiar to us. But honestly, think about Jesus hanging on a cross and how just intensely appalling that image would be. 
I mean, I would recall it was only a novel, but perhaps it wasn't. But I think it may have been, or maybe it was a, an autobiographical story of a young Jewish boy who had never set foot inside a Catholic church and finally, you know, snuck into one and saw that guy hanging on the altar. And he, I mean, his horror could hardly, you know, be more than Christians going to India and seeing the elephant-headed Ganesha. It's what... But it, it means something entirely different to us, doesn't it? It doesn't mean murder. We're not worshiping a dead man, just the opposite. His crucifixion represents to us all of that other reality. But you see, that story is familiar to us. But even in the Christian tradition, many people don't really have a clear idea of what that's about. It's just become familiar. And Swamiji writes that, um, that whatever tradition you didn't grow up with, you never really feel quite comfortable with all of it. But if you grow up with it, it just seems very natural to you. I grew up, as I said, in a Jewish family, and you know there were Jewish types around. And you just, you're sort of familiar. You meet a Jewish type, and you kind of, there's a comfort in it, the way people talk. And I know I have friends from the um, black culture, from the African-American culture, and it won... Uh, it was, was rather fun. At one Halloween party, they came as two black cats. And they were dressed in, as, as animals, you know, like black cats. But they kept shifting over into being two black cats, you know. And then, but what was so much fun was because they're in the minority in our community. But I watched them fall into their own culture and just sort of play out all of these just types, you know, that to them were perfectly recognizable just as the Jewish types are perfectly recognizable to me, or the Greek or the Italian. And one friend of mine who was Italian married a person who wasn't Italian, she. After a time, the marriage broke up over innumerable misunderstandings. And later, when they were able to, to look back and realize how mismatched they were, he commented that um, she had said to him, I find what you are doing quite upsetting. And she thought that was an extremely strong emotional statement, being British, as she was. He, being Italian, thought if dishes weren't breaking, nobody was upset about anything. <laughs> you know, we just, we just live in the reality that we live in, right? And it seems very natural to us because that's who we are. Now, um, the thing that Swamiji talks about, which is the really important universal aspect here, now we're just, I mean, more personal aspect, just the opposite. He says, when there's too much aversion to... He, 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 this is how he's trying to describe it. You know, the human mind, in order to access this infinite potential that we're trying to access, we need some transition points. How, how can we be devoted to something so vastly beyond our actual experience? And though so Swamiji talks about the effort in the West especially among you know, philosophical religionists, to be extremely exact in our definitions. And his favorite one is always the cosmic ground of being. But he says it's sort of like, well, he doesn't use these words, but it's not very warm and fuzzy, you know, the cosmic ground of being. You don't just walk around saying, oh, how my heart is so moved by the cosmic ground of being. Even if one has a philosophically inclined nature and the contemplation of, the vastness of things really does lift the spirit, there's a certain lack of intimacy with that. And he says, if we stand, as we have stood often in the West, Protestantism and Judaism as particularly notable, 
too strongly against using some image as the focal point for our devotion, gradually our devotion becomes less and less. Because we need to engage the heart's feelings in a way that we can recognize. And so, so whether it's a picture of Christ or the picture of Mary, the Catholic Church, which has been much stronger both in the devotion to the saints and in the use of images, has a much more devotional quality to it, doesn't it? Often, I have been so astonished to go into Protestant churches and many Jewish churches too, of course, but the Protestant churches, and for, I, I mean, I can't find the altar. The only way you can find it is because the chairs are all facing that way. But when you look at it, you can't find anything up there. And I, there's a, a really big church in this area that I went to for some reason or another. And, you know, we're sitting facing this way and the choir is sitting facing us. And that's like it. And I'm just trying to find, you know, where do I give my heart? You know, where, where do I look to be inspired? Where is that window through which that inspiration is going to come to me? And it's just not there. The Jewish temples are the same because they're so against images. What you have in the front is you have the ark where the Torah is kept and the wisdom of the Torah is the closest thing we have to worship. And, and they do. They revere the Torah. The Torah, because the human nature desperately wants symbols, so the, the scrolls of wisdom, of teaching become the symbol and we take the Torah out of the um, whatever the name of the thing is where it's kept and then it walks around the temple and people kiss the edge of the Torah. You know, it's because like we have to. We, we desperately want to have a specific, intimate, loving relationship with something. Isn't that what human nature is all about? Isn't that what we all work so hard to have? It's often why, I mean, not that it's a good reason or the only reason, but often people will have a baby just because they want something of their own to love. Isn't that so? How many young teenage girls, you know, get pregnant on purpose because they want something of their own to love? They want to be intimate with someone, something. And everything that we do in a human way is just, as we've been saying all along, it's, is a symbolic attempt to reach something more profound. And in, in the book, Swami mentions also that the Muslims who stand so strongly against images still all pray toward Mecca. And they go on pilgrimage and then they circle whatever the center point is, the rock there, which they believe was descended from heaven, you know, put there by an angel because we all need focal points for our devotion. Now, the, there's no fault in that as long as we understand that what we're working with is through a window. I mean, people struggle with it you know, because we have pictures of the masters, why should I be devoted to a guru? Why should I pray to master? And they think, wouldn't it be more efficient just to pray directly to God? Why would I want to go through any intermediary? Shouldn't I just go directly to God? But the problem is, that doesn't take into account how human nature works. That if we can't actually personify it in something specific, our devotion tends to dissipate into vagueness. And it's very hard to engage the heart. And it's the feeling quality of the heart that provides us both our determination and our motivation. Um, it, it, so I was speaking to someone just recently who's newer on this path, and he was talking to me about his, his zeal to study. And he, has, he commented that in his life, he's had zeal to study. This is not the first time he's zealously studied something. And he, he said, you know, that whether or not I stick with things and entirely depends on the feeling, you know, my feeling quality. There has to be 
a movement. And this is what we were talking about earlier, about the shakti, the female feeling quality, the feminine female quality, feeling quality, is what moves the reason quality to action. And reason without being balanced by feeling can just get lost in theory and often never actually takes a step. How many of us know people who, uh, to whom we have explained these teachings and uh, who we have desperately tried to persuade to get involved and they might even be interested but, but they don't ever actually move toward it because there's no longing in the heart for them to do so. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? And how many others of us had even, not even necessarily a clear conception of where we were going, but the feeling, um, the, the longing for something moved us first. And then gradually the heart and mind came into rhythm with it. But without, with just reason, without feeling, then nothing ever really happens, especially on the spiritual path. So Swami's describing when we're too strong against allowing the, the natural desire for human intimacy to express itself in relationship to some particular image, he, the interesting statement he makes is, is that he said, faith often gets diverted into social service, which I thought was an amazing comment. It was a particularly interesting comment to me. This is just a digression, but this last Sunday... At the end of service, I saw a man I'd never seen before walk in from the back, and he looked a little inquisitive, but, you know, people often come in, and so it wasn't so unusual, and when the service was over and we all walked to the, light bearers walked to the back of the room, this man, as soon as he was able, came up to me. It turned out he didn't speak English all that well, but he was in a great deal of distress, and he thrust this paper in front of my hand and wanted me to relate to it. It was essentially an eviction notice. Pay rent or quit the property is what it said. And I, and I sort of said, essentially, he, he, he said in words to me, you know, do something about this. And I said, I just really wasn't sure what I could do about it. And he was just wandering around and he thought, well, maybe a church could help him. I tried to talk to him about, you know, the various social services and he kind of, his communication skill wasn't great, so we weren't clear-minded, but thought to myself, this is not going to be the last time this happens, especially if we spiral into what Master has promised is going to come to us. And, you know, we, Ananda has, essentially does nothing in terms of actually being engaged with um, people who are in trouble one way or another. You know, we, we serve people who come for our message, and we serve them um, with all our heart, mind, and soul but we've never really picked up the flag of social service ever. I mean, we don't even collect cans at Thanksgiving. I'm not saying that we're actually philosophically opposed to it, but it's really never risen to the level where anyone has particularly acted on it. And part of it, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking when I'm reading here, is I feel like what we're doing is so much to solve all the problems of the universe that I don't see the need to disperse our energy solving other problems. And there's almost also a very deep sensation, and this is partly just personal, which I don't want to prejudice the whole situation. That was what I was thinking today, because other people have different callings. I have such a sense of been there, done that. You know, it just would be, it's just too natural for me to step out and start an orphanage or <laughs> go to some country and spend my life trying to feed the starving or whatever it is. I mean, we've all... Um, 
exhausted ourselves in that effort over and over again. And that's part of, in truth, and I don't mean this in a negative way, what brings us to this path, which is we have tried to serve God by affecting his creation in some lasting way and gradually discovered that there's a deeper and more profound way to affect his creation, which is to help individuals change their consciousness. So I never feel any guilt about it. But I have now begun to wonder if times start getting really hard and the pressure on us to serve in ways that we've never uh, focused our attention to. I mean, I wonder if we need to give it more thought than we've given it in the past. These are just sort of random musings, all from that one single sentence. If devotion is not allowed to focus itself in, in such a way that true intimacy with the divine is created, then our energy gets diverted. But when great intimacy with the divine is created, there's a tremendous sense of being in a deep and meaningful relationship with God. And sometimes that deep and meaningful relationship guides us outward into social service. Mother Teresa is a superb example in our lifetime that we can't help but see. Um, And her life was so interesting because other people perceived it in terms of social service, she perceived it only as doing what Christ had asked her to do. It was her intimate relationship with, with, with Christ and his commandment to her to serve the poor that caused her to serve the poor. It was not in her mind a fact that the poor actually needed her. And implicit in that was if at any point she had felt Jesus withdraw that commandment, she would have followed him wherever he took her. Because that was all that mattered. That intimate connection had been formed. And as I say, it depends on how God guides you. It's what really matters. But without that intimate connection, then one just sort of casts about and tries to figure out what one ought to do. And, and often, again, meaning no disrespect, there's a certain dryness if religion only becomes social service. It's like people are working hard to serve, but there's a certain... Uh, something that you don't feel when you feel when people are deeply in love with God, whether they're serving the poor or not. And that's what we find so attractive, is that deepness. And Swamiji writes about how the Indian culture altogether is very much heart-oriented. As a culture, it moves very much from the heart. In the West, we move very much from the mind. We move with our thoughts about things. We analyze. We're very rational. It's not that Westerners don't have the same capacity for love we do. But as a culture, we don't really move from the heart in the same way. I mean, we go and spend time among Italians or among Indians, and you do, you just sort of, um, if you're a somewhat mentally ordered, or, or oriented American as I am, there's this, you, you really have to sort of breathe out and just kind of accept this uh, inflow of energy and this expectation of, of open-hearted communion. You know, I often find myself sort of almost standing like this because that's where I, that's where I go and I'm more comfortable. And I have to really just, you know, move into it. And just a whole different reality. And of course, it's a wonderful reality. Um, people stand closer to you. They talk longer. They talk more in your face. They, they just, it, it's not the assumption of friendship or anything like that because Americans are the most friendly in that respect. It's just the sense of how you would relate. I've mentioned to you before 
I've seen it so vividly, standing next to Swamiji in this temple when he greets people. Often when we have the big satsangs here and he'll greet two or three hundred people and there'll be quite a few cultures in this area represented. And, and either whether he continues to speak English or changes into another language that he may know. I just, it's so interesting to watch how the different cultures relate to him. You know, how close they stand, what they say, the, the way they move their bodies, you know, just everything. And it's not necessarily any indication of spirituality per se, although to a certain extent there's some of that. Just, it's also just cultural. It's just the way we are. And Swamiji really talks about this emphasis on images of all these manifested forms of God um, create among the Indians, and, and this is another misconception he's trying to correct about the Hindu way of awakening, is um, that, that from the, the Hindu revelation, which is what we were talking about last week, is that everything is an expression of the divine. And it's not as if, and the way Master put it so perfectly, he said the ocean becomes all the waves, but that doesn't make any single wave the whole ocean. And this is, again, where the Western mind, because it's so, partly because we're so rational, which leads to if, if this is true, then that can't be true. And just the way we think about things, it's hard for us to sort of see that, yes, I, in our family, our family deity is the goddess Durga. But, but our mind auto, automatically thinks, well, then Durga must be the god you worship. No, they worship the infinite spirit. But in their house, that little wave has come up, and it's Durga, and this is the tradition of our home. I, I think I, I may have told it in this class, I can't remember whether it was in this series or another, when we went to India one of the early times and were chanting at one of the Durga pujas, and, and Durga sang all these, it happened to be Durga who was leading the chanting, Durga chanted uh, all these Shiva chants, and then there was this big Shiva behind us that we hadn't even noticed, and we little Westerners were, well, this is supposed to be Durga puja, why is Shiva behind us? And it was just all very confusing to us. And we would ask questions like, which God is the most powerful God? You know, and we would expect there to be a reasonable answer to that question. But at one point, I, it finally occurred to me, specifically about Shiva, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, depends on what you're trying to do. You know, if you need, if the manifestation of spirit that you need at a certain point is the power to overcome delusion, then Shiva's your man. You know? But if you're really wanting, um, well, Saraswati is the goddess of music and of dance, and what you want is artistic creativity, well then, Saraswati is what you want to tune into. Because that's the vibration of the spirit that you want. And so what we're also seeing in this plethora of different images, all of which have distinctly different vibrations to give us, is the understanding that every aspect of life is at least potentially a manifestation of the divine spirit. And everything that we do, at least potentially, can be a manifestation of that spirit. And we should turn toward the divine. And Swami wants us to understand this word worship more clearly. It's not that we worship it in the sense that we think of, which is we beg it for favors or we, as Master said, we flatter God thinking that it'll be more responsive if we tell him he's wonderful as if God needed to be reassured, as if he was some insecure person who needs to be told he's wonderful and then he'll be nice to us. But it's more that each of these images represents a different vibration of the infinite. And so depending on what we're trying to manifest in our lives, 
To worship means to attune yourself to, to harmonize your energy with. And that's really what we're doing when we, quote, worship something correctly, is that we're trying to, to match our vibration to it. And so we, we, we understand more clearly what the different potentials of the spirit are because all of these different images that have been brought forth to, to show it to us. Swami mentions Ganesha as the overcomer of obstacles. And you know the tradition in India is before you start any enterprise, you pray to Ganesha. Because Ganesha is the power to overcome obstacles. It isn't that Ganesha himself will intervene necessarily, although I want to speak to that in just a moment, but he represents the power to overcome obstacles. And this is where devotion and self-effort sort of come together. That we, we, we put out our energy to attune ourselves to the power of the infinite to overcome obstacles. As we get more in tune with that, we attract more of it. Because there's the other side of it, which is we can't just also dismiss these things as convenient fictions. And then Swami goes on to talk about how, you know, every consciousness on this planet is evolving. Everything is evolving ultimately toward complete God-realization and just as we have a duty to help those who are less evolved than us, and Swami mentions in here, as he's mentioned in other places, the importance of being kind to animals and the great good karma of animals who have human beings to help them. It's very sweet the way he sort of gives the relationship to animals a certain credibility in that respect because we're, we're turning back to those who are less evolved and helping them to come to a higher level of understanding. Swamiji made the interesting comment once that he said everything in the world looks to him, the way he put it is uh, every conscious being, he said looks the same. He said it's just egos struggling to be free. And then he said even animals. It's just the same continuum, just much lower on the continuum. It's always, it's always been fascinating to me to watch Swami relate to animals. And it's not, it's not dissimilar to the way he relates to children, uh, in this respect, which is he, when he looks at children, you sort of get the feeling he's not seeing exactly what we're seeing. You know, he'll just he'll look at a child with the same sort of serious attention that he would give to any other person. There's none of this sentimental, oh, aren't you cute kind of energy. He's he's never sentimental. That's actually that's actually what it is. There's a complete lack of sent- sentimentality in Swami's regard of both children and animals, whereas most people are captivated by how cute children are. And there's this certain, just, oh, aren't they adorable? Because we just see their cute little bodies. Swamiji somehow, I'm actually explaining this to myself for the first time, somehow or another, he's just tuned right into the consciousness. And merely because that child's a baby, Master tells the story of a baby being placed in his arms, and he said he was so startled when he looked into its eyes, he almost dropped it, because he saw, as he he put it, the carried over consciousness of a murderer. I mean, if somebody murders somebody and is either electrocuted or dies in prison or gets away with it, sooner or later they die, and sooner or later they're going to be reborn. And when they're be, be reborn, merely dying doesn't necessarily cure you of that inclination. Now, obviously, this particular baby had mixed karma because it was in master's arms. But nonetheless, he saw in this innocent little goo-goo baby that its parents are doing all this stuff too. He sees the capacity to murder. I mean, it's not going to take its little newborn hands and put it around the neck of its mother, but it's only because it isn't strong enough, not because it might not be inclined to do so.
But because we're sentimental about children, and sentimentality is a very interesting concept, we think that they're so adorable. And that's actually what I've seen in Swami. He's just not sentimental about it. He's, he's not cold. He's just completely realistic. This is a short, young person, but they're just what they are. And he looks at animals just the same way. He just sort of regards them. He used to, he used to often say, especially when he would see dogs, he would say, hello, beast, like that. <laughs> hello, beast. He was perfectly friendly, but not excessively so. Just like, well, there you are, struggling to get free, aren't you? You know, just like the rest of us. It's interesting, isn't it? And, and, it, and that gives a kind of universality to your friendship. And sometimes animals are highly evolved, and sometimes animals actually... There's two stories that are odd that way. Um, Ramana Maharshi, who was a great saint in India, there was a cow named Lakshmi, as it were, who was deeply devoted to him. And Ramana Maharshi said that that cow became spiritually liberated, that, he, that they have a little Mahasamadhi Mandir you know, for that cow because Lakshmi was so devoted to the guru and there's all these stories about her, her pure nature and how devoted she was to, to Ramana Maharshi that he was able to evolve her right through. And they say that Lahiri Mahashaya in the end of his life was, quote, working on a technique to liberate animals directly. What on earth does that mean? I have no idea. But in theory, you can see it. Do you know why would they have to go through all of this? Why wouldn't they just be able to skip? And then there was a story about Ananda Ma, and there was this fly that was buzzing around her all the time, and others wanted to drive it away, and she said, no, she said, it's a saint from a, another lifetime who just wanted to spend time close to this body. You know, where do you put such thoughts? You don't have any idea where to put them, except it tells you this world is very different than it seems. But where I was going with all this is another thing that Swami talks about in here, about how there's many different levels of evolution and many different kinds of beings that are all, you know, influencing this world at the same time. And he talks about nature spirits and fairies and devas, which is another word for angels, who are responsible for uh, growing plants and flowers and all the, all of the sort of uh, things that we think of as fantasy are really not fantasy at all. They're, they're just facts that the way this world is arranged is much more complex than we realize. And the, the Hindu concept, um, not that they worship nature spirits per se, but they understand that this is a very complex total manifestation of the infinite, that the ocean of spirit is putting up waves in all different forms. And, and when we concentrate or enjoy or focus or tune ourselves to one wave or another, it doesn't mean we've limited the ocean to that wave. It just means that we're enjoying that capacity. When the Krishna bhaktis fight with the Durga bhaktis, that's really stupid, you know. And when the Christians fight with the, uh, the followers of Rama and Sita, that's really dumb to just grab your wave and say that's all that there is. But merely because there's lots of waves, it's just really talking about the extremely complex and, complex and interesting nature of this universe. And Swamiji is also saying that because, especially in the West, because of the influence of science, where we've become so mundane about these realities, and we, we say, you know, if it can't be replicated, it can't be true, and we just have gotten so rigid about this. He was saying, actually, that a lot of these, these spirits are withdrawing from this planet because there's nothing to nurture them. 
And he, he uses the example of a bowl of spinach, you know, has, you t- it would take 80 bowls of spinach to match the life force that used to be in one bowl. Now you could talk about it in terms of organic methods and pesticides and hybrid seeds and all these other things. But what's driven us to all of that? It's also been a lack of understanding of this um, intimate living relationship. And it all begins when we start sort of becoming too cold in our fundamental relationship to the infinite. Isn't it interesting how much is lost? And this is why Swamiji has gone to the trouble to write this book, to try to get us more sympathetic toward Ganesha and Shiva, because he sees in this a very important and necessary corrective that the Hinduism, as he as he's quick to point out, is an old tree in need of pruning. As he puts it, there were lots of different rishis, and they didn't always confer with each other, and some of them were wiser than others. And so a great deal of confusion has set in, and a great deal of ritualism, and a great deal of, of our tradition is, has set into it. Recently we just did this school play, and it was set in India, and we have a lot of Indian families in our school, and it was just left and right. Well, you can't do that because that's not the way it's really done and our tradition would be this. And, you know, well, and then what would happen to us? We would, we would finally, when we couldn't follow some particular thing, we would say, well, in the South it would be done that way anyway. <laughs> you sort of start tearing your hair out. You know, well, why don't we just pretend we're in the South then? But it was, it was just, we just got a little bit of a glimpse of how how, how old the culture is and how everything has come into these forms so that many Hindus themselves don't really understand anymore what they're doing and why. But for the Westerners to dismiss something that has so much to give us is also going to be to our great loss spiritually. And this is what Master is trying to bring together now. When, we, when I was first part of Ananda and, you know, we have certain... Indian aspects to things, especially in those early years, in the early 70s. Swamiji had been in India from 1958 until 1962, and then he started, he'd lived in India, and then he started Ananda in 1968. So it was really just a very short period of time. And in many ways, he had found his spiritual home when he went to India. Of course, Master was his spiritual home, but he found his home, and his place there, as he says himself, he feels more at home in India than any other place, even though he's quick to say he really is a citizen of the world, but the Indian culture resonates with him. So in the early years of Ananda, especially is all I'm really trying to say, we didn't have any idea, you know, those of us who were arriving, they're American kids, but he set a more Indian tone. He wore, he tended to wear a dhoti all summer long, he would just wear a dhoti, you see pictures of him in the long skirt-like garment that's an Indian garment. He often went bare-chested. He would, you'd see him in his dhoti with his long hair and the string of rudrakshamalas in this forest place. He looked just like a rishi from India. And he used to sit, we didn't have, in the temple, I don't think we had hardly any chairs, just a few benches in the back. And we had a, like a, a cot in the front, the dais. And Swami would sit cross-legged on the dais sort of the altar would be in the center and he would sit off to the side like this. It wasn't until I went to Indian ashrams in India that I saw all of it replicated exactly. And we were doing Indian chants and doing fire ceremonies and there was just, it was a very much more Indian bhav. And uh, I just assumed that we were Hindus. What else would I think? 
And it wasn't, of course, I learned from Swamiji more and more that we weren't, but it was many years later when I finally went to India, 1986, quite a long time later. And as soon as I got to India and actually visited a temple here and there, I, I, I realized exactly that what Master brought is no more Hindu than it is Catholic. It just simply isn't. It's neither Hindu. I mean, you can see slight elements of Catholicism in what we're doing. Well, frankly, there's about that much Hinduism in it too from the point of view of the external religion because it's not the way of belief, it's the way of awakening. And so what Swamiji is attempting to do with this book is part of what Master came to do, which is to reconcile this East and West. And part of it is we must restore to the Western mind respect for this ancient tradition because it has a great deal to teach us about true spirituality and we're um, denying ourselves something fundamental if we don't embrace it. And that's what he's trying to put across to us. So, let's take a short break, and then I'll take questions if there are any, and then we'll go into the next chapter. All right. Do we have any questions or thoughts about anything that we've covered so far? It's very important for our own devotion to God to really understand the necessity to ground it in a real relationship and not just let it be this theory. That's what I was really trying to say here. We have to ground it in some actual feeling intimate feeling experience. Otherwise, it's just this kind of airy-fairy thing that we just entertain our minds with. And you know, the, the Indian custom, you'll have a little image of God. Some real devotees will have this, you know, a little statue of Gopal, and they'll treat that statue. The, the whole Indian tradition is that that's a living statue, and they treat it like a living person. Well, the temple's closed from 12 to 2 because the God has to take his nap. And then after his nap, they kind of wash his face, and then they give him food and then he has his afternoon tea and then when it's evening time they do a whole ritual to put him to bed and there's these statues in um, the uh, Jagannath temple in Puri which are some of the holiest uh, one of the holiest temples in India well the the statues go out and they go out to their summer house because it's too hot in the temple and there's a sort of a sister statue that comes and visits them and I mean they have this whole ritual as if they were people they go visit their relatives and the relatives come and visit them I mean it to the Western mind, it, and with all due respect, it's just ridiculous. You just don't know where it's going or where it's coming from. And to a certain extent, it is a little over the top. But far be it from me to say that it isn't even actually factual. I will tell you the story of the Durga Temple, which I haven't told in a very long time. One of my early visits to India, we were at this, uh, we went to Varan, we were in Varanasi and we went, they insisted that we go visit. This was before we had control over these pilgrimage tours and we were often, the local people would take us where they thought we wanted to go. And they took us um, to this temple, this very ancient temple in Varanasi that's dedicated to the goddess Durga. Very old, very moldy, very not clean, very not Western. And it's, it's, commonly called the monkey temple because there are so many monkeys there. It's a problem in the whole city of Varanasi because they have this attitude toward animals that doesn't allow them to either poison them or mow them down with guns. So there's a lot of monkeys. It's a bit, you know, it's just, there's more garbage, there's more people, there's more monkeys. So this particular temple, there are a lot of monkeys. It's a real problem. And where there are monkeys, with a, I can't think of a kinder way to say it, there's monkey poop all over the place. So it's just was... And then the whole thing was moldy, and there was this pujari, this priest, 
who kept wanting me, kept wanting to honor me by putting this marigold garland around my neck, except that the marigold garland was past its prime and it had a kind of mildewy smell to it. So he kept putting this garland on me and I kept trying to find a place to leave it and then he would find it and he would come and put it on me. So I'm walking around in this temple and I am not having a very high opinion of this temple, of the goddess, of the priest, of India in general, of Hinduism overall. I'm just walking around with all these very unpleasant thoughts trying to get rid of this mildewy garland like this. And because I wasn't paying attention, I wasn't watching the monkeys. And I, monkeys are very territorial. And I crossed into an area where I was violating some monkey's territory. And the rest of this, there's little parts of it that I halfway remember and halfway were told to me. The monkey attacked me. And he jumped on my back, which was not a small problem. You know, this monkey jumps on my back. I grabbed the monkey, apparently. I, don't, I only vaguely remember this, and I threw him to the ground. And I said, get off of me, you filthy thing. You know, I was just so upset like that. And then by this point, all these priests are coming in. This monkey, I had this skirt I was wearing, and the monkey grabbed the skirt and sank his teeth into the skirt. I mean, if it had been my leg, it would have been really horrible. He didn't know it wasn't me. He sank his teeth into it, and I said, give that back, give that back, like this. <laughs> and he had it so strong that he ripped a big mouthful of my dress out of it, by which point, probably the priest had been trying to bury me in the mildewy garland. You know, they all rushed over, and they knew how to deal with the monkeys, and they pushed them back. Because they weren't really dangerous if I hadn't been so stupid. But I, I felt myself 100%, which is you criticize these things at your peril. You don't walk around in a temple that has been holy for hundreds of years, thousands of years perhaps, and just, you know, diss it in all the ways that I was doing it mentally. And I just felt I was just a walking ball of negativity and the monkey just came right at me like that. It was really, it was an amazing experience. And when I came home, I went to the local fabric store and I found this little decal of a little monkey face and I sewed it over the whole... <laughs> and every time I'd wear that skirt, I would, it would remind me of that temple. I wore it to India for a number of years, you know, the Durga Monkey Temple. And the next time, well, I went afterwards and I pronomed in front of the deity and I apologized, you know, with my whole heart for my disrespect because you don't really know, you, know, you don't really know what's going on. Not that... I excuse the way that temple was maintained or run, but still, there's a lot of power behind these things, this, these relationships that people build. Now, let's see, I had another thought with that. can't quite recall what it was. Oh, but we ourselves, that's what I was trying to say, you know, we, we ourselves, and Swami talks about this, the, the, because there's this Indian relationship with these forms that they really bring into their homes and have part of their lives, you have this intimate relationship. And that's the real power of spirituality. The power of spirituality isn't the ability to philosophize and talk all these great stories. I mean, think about it. You can be very impressed with people who are very knowledgeable. But what really inspires you to want to be like someone or to be with someone? or what makes our own lives happy. We can be certain degree of happy when our minds are all busy, but it's really the longing of the heart to be filled. That's what it's really all about. That's what moves us. And that's what all of this incredibly complex and beautiful devotion is really about. Now, 
Now the next thing Swami talks about is the, is the Om and the Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva and all of that. So we can go there next if we're ready to go there. Okay. <clears throat> Swami talks about the Om. It's really what he calls it is the highway to the infinite. And he, he talks about how all religious traditions in one form or another have this cosmic sound in them. In the beginning was the word is how John puts it. Every religious tradition has something that even sounds a little bit like Om. Because anyone who begins to interiorize their consciousness, as, as Master said, sound is one of the most accessible forms of the, of the spirit. Because it is the vibration of which we are made. It is our own self. Swami makes the interesting explanation of Jesus saying, all sins are forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost was Jesus' way of talking about the omnipresent Om vibration, everywhere but invisible. But to, to sin against the Holy Ghost is to turn away from our own divine nature. That the Om sound is our own divine nature. We, within ourselves, are made up of that cosmic vibration. And when we deny that in ourselves, nobody can save us from that. We ourselves have to reawaken to it. It's such a beautiful and interesting explanation, but it only comes when we begin to understand you know, what this Om vibration is. Swamiji makes the distinction here that the Christian, that the Om vibration, he, he starts by talking about you know, the, the, the holiness of the number three, and he sort of plays us through you know, how, how, how many spiritual symbols, the, the Holy Trinity, the vibration, the three letters of Om, the Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva of of uh, the Indian tradition that three is often, there's often two forces in the reconciling force. And that's the picture of spirituality, that creation is dual, and that it's about the number two, male and female, light and darkness, you know, salvation and heaven and hell. And then um, the, uh, the mysteries, that's the word he uses, the mysteries of divine life are three that you have these seemingly irreconcilable forces and they come together. The gunas we talked about last week, rajas and tamas revolved, resolved in the sattvic energy. And then earth things are four. The four seasons, the four times of day, dawn and dusk, midnight and noon, um, the four yugas. And it's just, as he says, life, earth life is four square. Um, inner life is mysterious and it's threes and creation itself is dual. And then he says, numerology is a, an undeveloped science now. He said, but everything eventually can be reduced to numbers. And he talks about how computers just work with some number system that I don't understand at all. But it's an odd thing because personally I, I relate to people and I don't really relate to numbers all that well. But every so often, a, a person, a friend of mine who is particularly chaotic in their life, I looked at their phone number and I thought, they have a very chaotic phone number. You know, some phone numbers, some numbers just kind of work in harmony. And I noticed that their phone number was just full of random digits. It just didn't seem to have anything. And it's, I mean, some people know numbers. That's their orientation. But because I'm not very number-oriented, I've tried more recently, just for fun, you know, tried to, to feel the consciousness of numbers and just see what they say to you individually. A friend of mine, uh, Vimla Rogers, has, uh, she calls herself, I'm sure it's some, a word she made up, she's an alphabetician. <laughs> and she created a whole handwriting system 
the Vimla, the Vimla system of writing. And, and actually, it's very serious. You know, she started out being as a, she would read handwriting, and, and she has this whole fascinating and true theory that the way we teach handwriting to children is based on a completely different concept of the purpose of life. We train children to be obedient and to follow the, regu- the, the rules as they were. And so she's created a whole alphabet based on the principles of handwriting analysis that actually develops creativity and personal freedom and um, all kinds of wonderful qualities. And at the Ananda Village School, well, at Ananda Portland School, we don't actually use it in this school, although we used to have the letters up. But in Portland, that's the only system they teach. She's really trying to start a revolution, teach children to write in the correct way from the beginning. Of course, people don't use handwriting much, but we still teach children to write, train them to make their letters to reflect the qualities we want them to have. It's a fabulous system. Um, But she, all through her childhood, she would meditate on the different letters. She would just contemplate an H. I mean, you know, just a precursor of her destiny before she even knew what she was going to do. Because H used to sort of speak to her and it would have all these qualities and now she writes about the qualities of an H and what it represents. And, and numbers have the same reality. There's all these, everything is a symbol, nothing is an accident. If, if we can read it, it will tell us all sorts of things. And so the whole science of numerology, even though it's not... Uh, highly evolved at this time. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean it's not true. So it's, and, and that's why people can get fragments of it, or even if they're good at it, really deep truths from it. Astonishing, isn't it? It just makes you back off in humility to all of your snap judgments about any, everything, doesn't it? Um, so Swamiji talks about the threefold quality of Om as this inner vibration, which, and he he talks about the, 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 the vibration of Om is the fundamental reality. But then in an attempt to communicate what was great sages' direct experience of the Om vibration, they, they created a, a trinity of gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And those, those, that trinity of gods is the symbolic personification of these three qualities of the Om. You see, someone goes in to themselves, has this deep experience of this Om vibration, which Swamiji describes as having all the qualities of creation simultaneously. And what are those qualities? There is the creation of this world, there is the ongoing reality of this world, and there is the ultimate dissolution of this world. There's the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer. And it's not linear. It's not like things start, they have a middle, and they end. It's something that's always going on. Master put it, he said, that a birth in the, in the material world is a death in the astral world. And, when, and a funeral in the material world is a rebirth into the astral world. And he puts it even more challengingly. You know, when someone dies in the material world, we mourn their loss and they welcome them in the astral world. And these things are happening at all times. And even as the, the father grows older, the son grows, uh, the son begins to grow up. The father begins to fade and the son begins to grow up. There's lots of myths where the, the, uh, the child eats the parent. 
you know, that the child actually consumes the parent in one way or another, which is what you see happening. The child feeds on the parent's energy and then the child gets stronger and the parents become diminished. The child is taken care of by its parents and the parent is taken care of by its child later at the end of its life. And even as one fades, the other rises. This is what I'm saying. It all happens just one after the other. The um, night, the sun is chased out of the sky by the approaching darkness and then the darkness is expelled by the rising sun again. And it, it's just, it even in the night, inherent in the night is the beginning of the day. Nothing ever stays, but it's always this constant force. And Swami also describes that in the Om vibration, you hear these three simultaneous sounds. And he talks about how the, he uses a car motor. When something is starting, it has a certain sound to it, a, a more high-pitched whine as the motor gets going. And then it goes to sort of a middle tone and when the motor is running. And then when, you, when the motor stops, it, the tone goes slower and it fades away. And he uses that as an example of you hear the creation, the preserving, and the dissolution in the Om sound. And, but, and again, you don't hear it sequentially. You hear it happening at all times. So the Rishis, perceiving and experiencing this, wanting us to understand the threefold nature of the inner mystery, they create these personifications in the form of these gods. So first you have the preserver and you have the power of Brahma, as Swami says, these myths, which are not really myths because they bring the truth into focus. They are divine realities explained through this particular window. And then he also says, because people become devoted to these images, they actually coalesce, they become realities. Master made the interesting statement that the part of these different gods is played by different advanced souls over time. Like Swamiji said, like, there's always a king of England, but it's not always the same soul. So there can be a Shiva in creation that somebody, some advanced soul, plays the part of Shiva and actually is in charge of responding to Shiva devotion. I guess that's what you would think. I mean, this is so far beyond me. But then after time, perhaps that soul evolves beyond that role. It's serving. Because when... when Somebody prays deeply to Shiva and has a vision of Shiva. You know, he's having a real vision. And if that force responds to him, Master said that there's an actual being, you know, an individualized being who would be that, playing that part. Is there more than one Shiva at a time? God knows. I couldn't possibly even begin to think about it. But once again, we mustn't become too dry or too um, uh, unexpansive in our thinking about this. So, um, Swamiji describes, you know, that th- this, these threefold realities as being all being necessary to keep creation in motion. And then he, to make it even more clear, he talks about how even human nature expresses itself according to these three realities, doesn't it? And he talks about how people are different types. You know, Brahma types are very creative and they like to make things happen and they like new things, and then once things are established, the sort of everyday running is not at all attractive to them. And then there's individuals who just thrive, who, who aren't Brahma types, but once something is established, they can keep it running very nicely for us. And then he talks about how um, 
you know, the, the Vishnu type, which is Vishnu is the preserver of reality, can also, in its negative form, just become fixed and want things never to change and just get stuck in that reality. And sometimes the Brahma type in its negative form, you know, is, is restless and can't um, hold... I, I'm not saying that correctly. Let me just think exactly what he actually says. But... Uh, Oh, creating havoc, that was the word he said. (laughs) Instead of creating good things, they just create havoc. They like to just mess things up all the time. They never like anything to stay the same. So they're always trying to create something new at all times, and so they create havoc. Um, Or they might even actually try to stop other people's creativity, is how he was saying it. Um, But then the, uh, the uh, the Vishnu type likes to maintain what's happening, and then the Shiva type... um, can have the positive Shiva type is that they're always trying to, to break limitations. They're always trying to break ignorance. They're always trying to sort of um, move beyond the obvious into something bigger and better. But of course, Shiva types can also just be fundamentally destructive is what he's also saying. Let's see. Enjoys in the destruction simply for the sake of d- destroying. Now... You know, it's sort of fun because um, this was, again, a realization that I had in the middle of the Shiva Ratri once, this long, long, used to do an overnight um, worship ceremony chanting to Shiva. Um, every year there's, Shiva Ratri is the night devoted to Shiva, and it's from, it's a 12-hour from 6 to 6, 6 in the evening till 6 in the morning, and you do tapasya. And the real power of Shiva is the disillusionment of, of the ego and the destruction of delusion. But you know, it's, I often talk to people because I'm, I say I'm a very good Shiva type when people have too much stuff in storage or they have to move and they don't know what to throw away or they're too attached to things they don't need to be attached to. I, I often offer myself as a very good Shiva that I'm, I'm very able to just sort of cut through and see what you need to keep and what you don't need to keep. And one of my understandings about sort of how these Hindu gods and goddesses come together was it during one of the Shivaratris when I just suddenly saw how basically sometimes you need to be Brahma and create something new. Sometimes you need to be Vishnu and just keep going with whatever it is that has to be done. And sometimes you need to have be a Shiva and you just have to wipe away what's there and move forward. And by personifying them in these different gods who have these different functions, you could say those words, you know, sometimes you need to do this, sometimes you need to do that. But you see, if you're, especially if you're brought up in the tradition, where the nature of each of these gods and goddesses is instilled in you through lots of stories and examples through your whole growing up, you see how you can imbibe the whole understanding of that. That's how Master writes, even in Autobiography of a Yogi, how the tales from the Mahabharata and the Ramayana his mother would summon them as necessary in order to inculcate in him discipline or write lessons because they would explain in words that were easily graspable what these subtle concepts were. And if you say you worship this God or that God, what you're saying is you're trying to harmonize your energy with that aspect of the infinite. And, and then Swami uses the example of Ganesha, which he mentions. Ganesha is the son of Shiva. Shiva is the one who destroys evil and is the great renunciate. He renounces everything in the world. Shiva is this ascetic with wearing very few clothes and long matted locks and holding a staff and living up in the Himalayas. He's just renounced, dissolved all this 
world. He doesn't live in this world. He doesn't, he's not involved because he's the great destroyer of delusion. But Ganesha is very affable, but he's the offspring of Shiva, and he's the destroyer of obstacles. So he has that power from his father, which is what Shiva's about, but he's very beneficent. So we have, we, we, it helps us to understand that the offspring of Shiva, the, the fruit of Shiva's uh, nature, it creates Ganesha. So you have Shiva who's very off-putting in certain ways, and then you have the most lovable God of all who's his son. And at first it seems like a contradiction, but you see, but through Ganesha you can approach Shiva. Through the feeling of God as the dissolver of obstacles, it makes you realize that, well, this dissolving of things may not be so bad. And so we have Ganesha who, Swami talks about the contradiction just briefly here, Ganesha has the head of an elephant, and an elephant is a huge animal who represents, the elephant is considered a somewhat wise creature. And the elephant is also huge, and therefore has the strength to just get through whatever needs to be done. But then, oddly, every uh, god has what they call its, its carrier, and it's usually some kind of a creature, and the god rides on that creature. Saraswati, I believe, rides on a swan. Others, uh, Garuda, I think Vishnu rides on an eagle. And uh, Ganesha, the elephant, supposedly rides on a rat. Which, you know, just, it, it's preposterous. You can't get your mind around it. Ganesha puts one foot on the rat and the rat is crushed. You don't understand how it would work. But Swamiji says, well, there's different ways to dissolve obstacles. The strength of an elephant crashes through the jungle, but the little rat can find a way. Uh, more, he uses the word subtle. The rat can sort of go places and find little spots and ferret his way through. So you have these two seemingly opposite forces paired in the form of this one divine image, which is God, uh, the God who, who overcomes obstacles. And you see how there's many ways to do this. And then you have him being fat and jolly, which is just trying to help us to understand, the, as Swami uses the word beneficence, the beneficence of the divine. That even Shiva's son, Shiva seems so formidable, but his offspring is this lovable force that will dissolve obstacles, the divine power dissolving obstacles. Now, of course, sometimes what we consider to be, an, what God considers to be an obstacle, we consider to be something that we really want to have. And, but Ganesha softens the blow. And uh, Swami describes him as one of his favorites, and Ganesha is one of the favorites. Lots of people who know nothing about Hinduism still have little statues of Ganesha. Because that's a wonderful quality, isn't it, of the divine? For us to feel that we have this beneficent, loving, slightly humorous, little bit childlike creature to whom we can pray whenever we need help to get through something. Isn't that marvelous how it all, all comes together? And you just look at the elephant head God and you think it's silly. But when you stop for a minute and see all that's exemplified by all those different characteristics, and that's a very small part of it, all that's exemplified by the simple Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, you begin to see what a rich, glorious, and fascinating uh, uh, revelation. That's the word I was looking for. Revelation, all of this is. So, is that and any questions before we stop for tonight? Yes, surrender. How very interesting. Surrender raises the point that Swami's going to write more on this same subject. You know, I, I immediately I can't remember, but now that I stop and think about it, I think he may have said that there would be a lot more to write. But interesting. 
I haven't heard him speak of it recently, so it's certainly worth considering. Oh, by the way, next week we read three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. Okay, for next week. 12, 13, and 14, the next three. All right, that's it for tonight. Thank you all very much for coming.